And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coach Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Paolo Bacigalupi on the Coot Street Podcast! Fading away longer every week. Welcome, Paolo. Welcome back to the podcast, and congratulations on the water knife, which is a major... Uh, at least I hope uh, Knopf is positioning it as a major novel. Uh, they seem pretty excited about it. So, yeah, I think it's it's uh, that all, all systems seem to be go right now. <laughs> that's that, that's And another thing, we're recording this a little bit in advance of the um, um, release of the book. But but as as we're recording it, I noticed uh, in, in, in today's newspaper, there was a review of a documentary movie called The Merchants of Doubt. Which uh, yeah. looks like exactly a documentary version of the Doubt Factory from uh, from last year. Indeed, um, yeah, Doubt Factory. Well, it's interesting actually because Doubt Factory was uh, Naomi Oreskes is the is the author of a book called Merchants of Doubt, and I, I think she's actually the, the there's her, oh. her nonfiction book was the source material for that uh, or the starting right. point for that documentary, um, and she was actually source material that I used also for the Doubt Factory when I was working on it. Um, uh, it was, um, yeah, Merchants of Doubt and uh, another one called, um, yeah, so and Doubt is Their Product uh, was another uh -huh. book, both of which were sort of starting point, jumping off points for me for my for my own work with that. And yeah, it's actually really cool to see a documentary that's sort of going to spread those ideas out much, much further than, than I think that they have been before. You sort of want to see um, the doubt industry exposed and sort of brought to light as much as possible. Yeah, and I wanted to get a plug in for the for the novel as well because it is, I think, important that young adults see yeah. things like that, and it's, most of them probably haven't thought of at all. They didn't even know this existed. No, no it was really fascinating. Actually, I was doing a, uh, I did a sort of a Skype visit with a with a school and um, was talking to students, and they were really. It was fascinating because they were really fired up about sort of the the the, the book had been sort of paired with their own research, and so they read the book, and then they went out and did a whole bunch of research into pharmaceutical companies and how they get their <laughs> drugs approved, and and you know how long they can try to keep a drug on the market when you know how long they can avoid getting a black box warning on their labels and things like that, and uh, and they were you know sort of stunned and 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 horrified as they started to figure out like you know how you know how many you know ways there are to sort of subvert our sort of public safety and and how cynically companies go about that um so it was it was very satisfying actually to sort of see the book you know used as both a piece of entertainment and then also as a jumping off point for their own sort of like under better understanding the world i mean it's interesting go ahead jonathan i was going to say that um, I mean, the Doubt Factory I think is an important book in a in a different way from the Water Knife, but in a way it's a similar book, and in a way it's a similar to a lot of your fiction. In that the Doubt Factory is really not quite science fiction; it's it's on the edge. It's things that we know are happening, um, but with with a sort of an imaginary group of sort of like super competent teenage yes terrorists, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But it's not science fiction. Uh, the Water Knife is science fiction, but they both are novels about processes which are deeply underway already right. and possibly irreversible. Yeah, it's kind of depressing, actually, when you think about it that way. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, there's, there is definitely, and, and I mean, for, for largely for the same reasons. I mean, you, you see, I mean, The Doubt Factory is all about, 
you know, essentially the, the process of both um, subverting our government systems, but also the process of, of sort of confusing the public um, and making sure that the public is, is confused to the extent that they can't push their government to represent their best long-term interests. And, and the best example of that is that the doubt industry, the, um, the, the petrochemical industries, um, the, the petroleum industries, um, worked for years to, to confuse the American public about whether or not global warming exists. Um, right. And they did a great job of it. It didn't cost them very much money either. Um, and, and so we're in this space now where, you know, a story like The Water Knife, which is science fictional, but suddenly it becomes a lot more likely because of the delay and obfuscation that the, the you know, that the petroleum industry uh, sort of engaged in and using doubt industry tactics. I mean, they used the exact yeah. same playbook that they, you know, was used for big tobacco and they just turned it on global warming. <laughs> well, I guess to give people a little bit of a background about the water knife itself, I mean, basically it's set in a not particularly far future United States. I, I don't think there's a date in the actual book, but I would what, never never put a date in a book. Never put a date <laughs> book. But I would have said what somewhere between, between 50 to 100 years from now. Sure. Would be my rough guess. Where sounds great. It, it sounds like a chunk of the United States has been reduced to a dust bowl. Uh, Texas has fallen apart politically. New Orleans is gone. Various other state the cities are in a state of crisis. There's attempted mass migration that's been stopped by laws preventing interstate migration. And now in on the west coast or in, in, in California through the whole... Uh, rivers, you know, it's this area that's dependent on the Colorado River. Water is disappearing, as we saw it disappear in your story, the Tamarisk Hunter, which is you know, related. Right. And now this is the story about what happens in what is almost like the Mad Max version of the, uh, Tamar the Tamarisk Hunter. I mean, like things are getting pretty bleak. Right. This is yeah, Australia sort of... somehow, Jonathan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, yeah, this, this story, I mean, this story, uh, it originally sort of, um, it, it did, I, I did start it, did start out as a short story, the Tam, with the Tamar's Cotter, um, and I was really interested in water scarcity on the Colorado River, and the Colorado River feeds, you know, essentially seven different states are dependent on the Colorado River, um, and, and and primarily you see those lower basin states you see a huge amount of stuff like california agriculture major californian cities like los angeles and san diego dependent on it but also major cities like phoenix and las vegas um also dependent on it and what we know is that um already you know water levels uh um and total water capacity in the in the colorado river basin is 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 um, lessening. Um, and then we also know that uh, from all the climate models that that's only projected to get worse. Um, that's only um, expected to be exacerbated. And so this is a, yeah, it's a far future story about, you know, all of these different cities and states sort of dealing with the fact that they've come to a point of zero-sum scarcity where um, if one person gets water, somebody else absolutely does not. And so how does that play out? Um, and so it's it's largely a story about a sort of a water war between Phoenix and Las Vegas and and those two um, metropolises and their sort of planning strategies and stuff and how they how they either go about um, solving problems or not and uh, yeah it, I don't know it was it was a uh, it's you know it just it 
sadly, it does seem more and more reasonable every day. Um. With, Cal- and with California sort of off stage throughout the novel, like, I don't know, like Saruman or something. They've got enormous right. Oh, right. I mean, I mean, California, like, I mean, you know, and this is this is sort of set in this future idea where, you know, I mean, there's certain trends that you sort of see in the United States. You sort of see a st- trend towards this sort of states rights, anti-federalism sort of, yeah. you know, nativism kind of thing going on. And, you know, so you sort of turn up the volume on that. You see um, you see this sort of um, you see you see the global warming sort of weird weather dynamics and you turn up the 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 um you turn up the volume on that you um you know you just sort of push all of those push all the dials over sort of to their most extreme and and that's sort of the mm-hmm. the world of the water knife um but that means like yeah that all of these states now are sort of on the verge of becoming their own independent political entities you know the united states hasn't quite crumbled but but the you know the idea of a federal government is becoming a lot weaker as each of the states sort of stakes out its own particular set of claims and and so you know and you know inside of that larger geopolitical sort of picture i'm i'm sort of trying to tell a, a human story about what um uh, what's happening with a couple of different people who are um deeply affected by all of these sort of strategizing and all of the sort of the scheming around water that's happening in the southwest and um, so you've got uh, Angel Velasquez, who's a water knife, and water knives are sort of like the 007s of water for Las Vegas. They go out and cut other people's water. They blow up other people's water treatment plants. They make offers that people can't refuse for their water rights, things like that. Um, there's this uh, journalist named Lucy Monroe who's down in uh, who's down in Phoenix, and she's sort of a she's sort of a, a, a sort of a, a documentarian of of collapse and apocalypse. Um, she's um, sort of been following the the slow fall of Phoenix for a long time, and uh, and has because and she's come across a lot of information about what what Phoenix's water rights strategies are and what people are doing inside of Phoenix and stuff. And uh, and then there's a Texas migrant um, named Maria um, Villarosa who's uh, fled from Texas uh, as Texas has collapsed under droughts and hurricanes and things um, and has ended up trapped in Phoenix because the uh, border patrol laws have gone up so much that they, she can't get anywhere else. And and so she's sort of trapped and orphaned in, in Phoenix um, trying to find a way out. And, you know, so you're sort of like trying to find ways to sort of tell the story of water through a couple of different um, sort of perspectives, um, sort of from the strategy perspective and the plotting perspective of Angel, um, sort of from a, you know, sort of a journalist sort of overview perspective, the way the uh, journalist would, and then um, and then from that very human perspective of somebody who's just been caught in the gears and is just trying to survive with Maria. And there's a, there's a fourth character who isn't a major point of view character, but it's very important for giving us, the reader, information about the strategies, and that's Catherine Case, who is this? Yeah, I love her. (laughs) (laughs) She 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 is this absolutely terrifying. I mean, if if there is a movie based on this, based on recent science fiction movies, should have to be played either by Sigourney Weaver or Jodie Foster. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be awesome. Corporate manipulator. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I mean, she's she's the she's the she's a she's a survivor, and she's she's a plotter, and uh, yeah. and you know she's making sure that Vegas survives. And uh, yeah, no, she's 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 a favorite for me. <laughs> but she's also just from a sort of a practical point of view in writing a novel. She has access to information that none of the other characters have access to, and we, the reader, right. need that information. So we need to right. have 
have her saying these things occasionally. Right. And yeah, and, and you know, and I do sort of. There's, there's, it's, it's a struggle actually when you're writing about something as abstract as you know water supplies, um, to turn that into something that's that's strongly visceral. I mean, both for for the reader to understand that you're going to be talking about, you know, a region that you know is going to stretch from the the, the Rocky Mountains with its snowmelt and its its snowfall patterns all the way down through a thousand miles of river system. Uh, yeah. to where it comes out of the tap and whether it's Las Vegas or whether it's somewhere in Phoenix and um, and how that all works and how all the pieces connect together that, you know, you know, the, the problem of, 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 you know, Las Vegas's water problem isn't just that there's not enough snow. It's also how much is stored in Lake Mead. It's also whether or not they've got another pipeline laid out somewhere else. And you're trying to give enough information to a reader so that that actually seems exciting and interesting, which is which was kind of a fascinating challenge. Well, yeah, I well, I'm, I'm interested to ask because I mean the book comes out at around the same time as the next Kim Stanley Robinson book, and he always b battles, I think, with the info dump question: how you meld the sheer volume of information you need to get across to people into the story you're telling, and still have it move forward at a engaging pace, I guess. And right. I'm, I'm curious, how much of a challenge was it with the water knife to 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 build all that information into the the story? And make it still work as a story. Um, it was it was it was a bit rough. I mean, I think I think for me always when I'm trying to find I'm trying to find that right entry point for a for a novel. Um, I remember when I was writing Wind Up Girl, I, I I rewrote the beginning you know dozens of times trying to find the right way to enter into the story so that you could dribble out just enough information so that people could become oriented. Um, but also keep a plot moving, but continue to dump more and more information into their brains because you needed to sort of get them up to speed with a lot of different things. And uh, and similarly, I had very very different set of opening scenes for um, for the water knife, and um, and part of my solution for that was you know the the, the very opening scene now in the water knife talks about uh, you know where you know, how, you know, the, the arcologies function in, in Nevada and, and where the water comes from. And there's a very early scene where Angel is in a, is in a helicopter flying towards a, uh, to attack a water treatment plant. And, um, and, you know, that they come across the, the Colorado River and there's a long description in there of the Colorado River and, you know, how this river system works and, and, um, you know, it long. I mean, it's all of like three paragraphs in the middle of an action sequence as I like, try to move <laughs> towards an action sequence. But, you know, trying to find, you know, just sort of like, okay, if I drop in a little bit of the physicality of the river in this section, and if I drop in a little bit of the, the water use and thinking ideas about, you know, how does water get used and reused inside of the arcologies, we're going to bring water into the front um, of readers' minds. If I, you know, like, and if I, you know, can mention at one point that Catherine Case has, uh, you know, has certain sort of live computer boards that are sort of describing, you know, uh, water levels around the states and what's, mm. you know, spot values on, on, uh, you know, free market, what free, freely available water that can be, you know, siphoned to Vegas. And, you know, if I give enough of these little things, you know, it starts to build, it's, 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 you're building mosaic in a way that you have enough pieces up on the board finally that I think a reader can, um, grasp it and engage with it. But yeah, it's, it's, you don't, you, you are sort of like, it, you are fighting to, to sort of, give a whole enough picture and at the same time 
you know, really propel them through a story. And, you know, particularly with something like Water Knife, where I was really gunning to try to write a thriller. I wanted yeah. it to be an exciting story. But I was going to say, you know, based on that, I mean, um, if if the background part of it, the, the, the building up, the, the story of water rights, the describing the Colorado River system, etc., if all that doesn't work, then really there's no point to the thriller side of it really is there. No, no. Well, I mean, I don't want to just write a thriller. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want, I, want, I want to explain the world. I mean, like, the whole point of, like, writing fiction is that you explain the world more clearly than than you saw it before. You know, you engage with it better. You... Um, you experience it more viscerally. You you see it with more clarity than you than you could see just through a nonfiction piece or just through a dryly reported news article. I mean, I can tell you that you know Lake Mead is you know at some of its lowest levels ever, and that Las Vegas is digging you know intake number three, which will mm-hmm. essentially siphon into the bottom of Lake Mead. Um, and this is like a multi billion dollar you know sort of mega project um, that they're doing. It's highly technical and highly um, you know it's 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 a complex process to try to drill underneath the reservoir um and that's what they're doing and uh and you know i can tell you those 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 sort of factual details but that doesn't necessarily say um it doesn't say what that means um in terms of you know what would it what would it feel like to have an entire you know housing development suddenly become valueless overnight Mm. because water doesn't come out of its taps um what is it like to have you know perfectly made granite tabletops and you know your maple um your maple cabinets and your marble bathrooms and it's all valueless because no water goes in and goes out of a house anymore um that's you know and so if you can sort of like drop the reader into that then suddenly they look at water in a completely different way one of the things i found fascinating and i i, th- I find this fascinating in what i think of as the best near future science fiction and william gibson does it really well is reading a passage and you don't know whether that's science fiction or not you don't know whether and one of the things that you yeah. have in this novel and it's mentioned in the tamarisk counter are straws what you call straws which, right. which i assume just basically enclosing a portion of the river, so there's no evaporation, and nobody can get the water but me. Um, right? Are there yeah. plants like that? In, in is that happening? Is that happening? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, we we call them pipes normally. <laughs> what? Yeah. Straw is a much more colorful term. Right. Exactly. And you know, and so yeah, like California is building the straw, and that's yeah that they're they're expanding. You know, I mean, it's it's a sort of a mega project version of something that Los Angeles did. You know, what almost you know. God, it could be a hundred years ago almost now. You know, it's like um, when they went after Owens Valley water, um, like and you know, scenario. right? Yeah, you, yeah the use the story China, the movie Chinatown sort of covers some of that territory. And um, it's you know, if you read Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert, um, there's a great it's set of passages about. By the way, oh yeah, yeah. No, I I loved being able to call out Cadillac Desert actually because it's such a it's such a formative text actually for sort of understanding the West and understanding water and um, and it's uh, like, what, thirty years old now. Sorry, it's thirty years old now. I mean, it's it's the uh, yeah. He no, was I mean, it's it's something happening back in nineteen eighties. Oh yeah, no. Like I mean, he was he, he was he sort of sends up these warning flares that we all of course ignored, um, but. 
but uh yeah it's i mean reisner's uh research into you know everything about the the big dam building eras of the west i mean the reason why you know the west is developed in the way the western united states has developed the way it has is because we went in for this really big sort of federally subsidized mega project water storage sort of stuff mm -hmm. and uh and it's it's given us a huge amount of capacity to pull off you know irrigation projects and to supply cities in ways that we never could have before but it also has rendered us like completely vulnerable in other ways and uh um yeah it's it's a reisner yeah his work is just it's great and so yeah so being able to um so being able to sort of call that out was 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 a lot of fun but you know i mean you know that moment was what i was thinking about was you know that there is a moment where las vegas um, las vegas um los angeles uh you know does in fact decide to scoop up an entire river and then pipe it, you know, whatever it is, a hundred and something miles over to Los Angeles. And, and the river is gone from the Owens Valley. The Owens Valley stops existing as an entity in some ways, because, you know, there's, you know, it was a thriving little town and community and stuff like that. And it just gets sucked away. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so that's, yeah, you know, it's like the, I think that the best science fiction finds, you know, things that are already happening and then just turns up the volume on them. Do you, what what did you find that surprised you the most when you were researching for this book? What did I find that was most surprising? Um, hmm, that's a good question, actually. I think, honestly, you know, the surprises for this book actually came much earlier, um, and they had to do... It's this is an interesting one for me. Um, a lot of the surprises for me actually came at an earlier moment when I had to make some decisions about what book I was going to work on next after mm -hmm. Wind Up Girl. Um, and there was kind of a period where I kind of wandered around in the weeds trying to figure that out. And um, and and I. They, the thing the thing that actually made me finally decide I was going to commit to the water knife and I was going to write about water and that I was going to write about climate change aggressively because um, in some ways it feels like this is a done story it feels like it feels like the data is so obvious and the information is so obvious that you're like why would I do this story and um, and the reason was that I was down in um, down in Austin for ArmadilloCon a couple of years, like back in like 2000, I guess it must have been in 2011 now or something. So it's really a long time ago. But um, but <laughs> this book took so long to write. Um, but um, the the thing was is that I was down there and and they were in the middle of this massive drought and there was there were terrible consequences happening in Texas and there was um, you know there were they had things like rolling brownouts and they were having to put cattle down because the the land couldn't support the cattle. And um, they had these uh, the the hydro uh, they they had electricity shortages because there wasn't enough water in the reservoirs to run the turbines. Um, they didn't have enough hydraulic head, um, and you know of course everything is sort of brown and dead. And it was like record number of hundred degree days. And and then Rick Perry starts praying for rain. Um, oh. And and that <laughs> was like this shocking moment to me. That was <laughs> that was the big surprise to me. It was like you know here's this thing this this climate this 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 what what they're calling a weather event right quote unquote weather 
um, you know, exactly maps to what sort of the the future climate looks like for Texas in many ways. Yeah. Um, you know, so in that moment, you can sort of be like, okay, right now, this this you could call it you could call this a drought, or we could call this time travel. Um, and we have just jumped <laughs> into the future, and here we are in the future, Texas, and it looks kind of shitty. Like this is kind of a problem. Um, <laughs> And then you've got this this governor who's at this time at the time was actually a vi- considered a viable presidential candidate is holding these prayer circles these these statewide sort of like pray mm-hmm. for rain things and um and you think my god like this is this is it for us this is this is us at our dumbest this is this is American society is it's a sort of most attenuated most stupid moment is mm-hmm. is the moment when we're all down on our knees praying for rain um and and when all the data says that like we've built this ourselves this problem is ours to own and uh and god ain't going to do shit for us um and it was just like the sort of that moment when you're like are we going to be a fact based society or are we going to be a fantasy based society and that's that's the critical decision that we face and and that and that was like the big surprise to me was was seeing this willful willful ignorance this deliberate willful ignorance um and and that and that was the reason and then suddenly i was like god damn it now i'm gonna have to write this climate change novel because (laughs) clearly the message isn't clear enough yet um you know and so you and that's you know and that's of course why there are mary perry's in the book um and and so part part of me wants to ask if you're when you when you do a book tour for this book if you're going to end up in Texas and Arizona, uh, <laughs> and good luck. But, yeah, thanks. But you, so, yeah, I'm go- I am going to I am going to be down in Phoenix. I am going to be doing a okay. doing, well, a, doing a stop down in Phoenix. Phoenix yeah, Phoenix so. will want you to answer a few questions. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Um, exactly. But, but okay, uh, just from my point of view, targeting fundamentalist approaches to this sort of thing, targeting the Rick Perry approach, it seems to me is an easy target. Compared to people who want to find some hope, I mean, I, I was reading the novel, and I, I will have to say, apart from the, um, the, the the political and social and ecological issues that it raises, it made me really thirsty. It is <laughs> one of the dryest novels I've ever read. I, I I told Jonathan this ahead of time. I was reading it in bed at night. I had to get up and go get a drink of water during some of these Phoenix scenes. So that's very <laughs> well, good. But there's a part of me that thinks, okay, there are a lot of intelligent readers you're going uh, to be looking at this. And, well, we must be able to think of something. What's going on with desalinization? What's going on with other options? What's going on right. with et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Is there right. any answer to those people? Um, well, to be honest, desal isn't going to save Phoenix. Um, desal uh, helps the coasts. The problem with water almost always is moving water. Um, it costs a huge amount of energy um, to move water uphill. Um, and actually, uh, the Central Arizona Project, which feeds Phoenix, is a great example of that. They actually have an entire uh, coal power plant that's pretty much that's focused on pumping water. Um, <laughs> uh, just and that's that's a pretty small overall. It's a fairly small straw, really, when you're talking about you know it's to supply essentially Phoenix and and Tucson and and some irrigable some a fairly small amount of irrigable land in uh, in Arizona in comparison to say. The amount of irrigated land that's out in California, or something like that, um, you know. But uh, but you know, desal desal is great for the coast, and there's certainly I think so. Here's the answer, you know. Honestly, is 
that much like with climate change, we have many answers. There are many solutions. It would require us to pick up those tools and solve those problems, which we so far have willfully decided not to do. <laughs> um, and and that's I think that's the you know is is this the predictive future? Is the water knife the predictive future? The answer is only if we're just as stupid as we are today. And that brings me to what I was thinking about when you said something a moment ago. Is the entire purpose of this book really to ask one question that has got nothing to do with water rights themselves and nothing to do with anything that on the surface of it appears to happen in the book but actually underpins it all to me? And that is the question you mentioned before. Are we going to be a fact-based society or a fantasy-based society? Right. Isn't that the yeah, real the question it asks? That's absolutely no. That's that's the you know the and and I think that you know each of the characters in the story is actually trying to figure out essentially where the future is headed, mm. um, and and you're you're sort of watching different versions of that um, are you know it's the, the the versions of people who want to hope that they can have a future like X or Y versus those people who are th saying I think I see a whole lot of things that are blocking me from getting my future and I'm going to do something about it. Um, you know you see a bunch of different people all trying to spin out their version of what <clears throat> what they want their individual futures to turn out like and that for me is is very much the, the the larger story as well as you know we can look around and say we want to have a good future um and then there's the question of like how many of us are clear-eyed enough to do something about it um because without spoiling anything about the details of it and i wouldn't want to go into any detail at all to me the final action in the story is a vote for a fact-based solution rather than the fantasy-based one. <laughs> yeah. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, okay. One of, I, I, I've read and I love the book, and uh, unlike Gary, I, mean, I read it here in Perth in the middle of summer where it's dry and it's dusty and I'm sitting on a <laughs> bus and it's sweaty and horrible. And I've got to say, it resonates depressingly, you know, in all sorts of ways. But... Right. Probably like a lot of people who read the book, I'm looking for where is the hope in this story, you know, because that seems like the kind of thing. And I, and I think back to earlier discussions with you where I think you sort of had said something to the effect that when you wrote for young adults, you felt you had to put hope in the story. And when right. you wrote for adults, it's like they didn't deserve that solace. They should be more sensible about things. <laughs> they should be... I think they should be more aware. Um, I think that there's, I mean, I think with, you know, where is the hope in, in something like the water knife or, or, you know, the wind up girl or whatever, the hope lies that we don't make the stupid decisions that send us into that future. Um, you know, that's my hope. I mean, yeah. the, the future that they, you know, by the time you're out into the water knife version of the future, it's it's like you've narrowed off so many options by that time because you know i mean here's the thing is like us not doing something about climate change today narrows our options tomorrow about how much we can mitigate the damage mm. um you know that yeah. us doing nothing narrows our choices it narrows our options and it narrows our opportunities for good outcomes um by the time you're out at the water knife version of the future there have been a lot of non-fact-based decision making you know sort of moments mm. already along the way i mean um and so you know if you're you're watching much more of a cascade where where it's 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 down to the sort of you know it's disaster and triage as opposed to oh how can we forge a great society um mm. and and so you know the ideal i mean i think that you know I at least in my mind is that like no you know none of my writing ever comes to pass because we all decide to be a lot smarter right now yeah. um 
and and that's that's the hope is like that the you know you sort of look at something like that say I do not choose this future I will actively not have this future um, I will actively not let my representatives and my elected officials create this future for me you know that you know that's the you know that's the hope but you know I think that it's well, um, you know but I you know I think it's you know pretty much yeah. tilting at windmills but yeah. you know it's it's a nice idea at well least. I mean, it, it, so. it depends on <laughs> We talked once about why you need to why do you need to write for young adults because they can still have their minds changed about right. things. They can, uh, right. if enough of them read, uh, the idea of right. writing a thriller, which uh, which this is, and it's it, it's a very efficient thriller, and it's it starts out with this absolutely movie ready black helicopter raid on a on a town. Um, so it, uh, more power to you if it becomes a bestseller. Although, I will say this, you, you don't have to agree with this at all, but uh, I've complained to Jonathan about it. I think I've complained on the podcast. Some of the promotional material, uh, one of the promotional lines that's put out by somebody is something along the lines of China. Okay, Chinatown is written by Michael Crichton. Uh, more uh, power to if you get Michael Crichton's readership. But Michael right. Crichton's attitude toward science was appalling. Oh, and his no, attitude to global warming no, no, was appalling. No, he, no, exactly. No, it's like state of fear. Like you know, he exactly. he he helped. T- I mean, this is the thing: is you know, a piece of piece of shit fiction can you know really <laughs> turn back the clock on all of our opportunities for making positive change in the world. There you go. Um, yeah, no, actually, I um the uh, I, I actually had a conversation with somebody about specifically. I saw some of that Michael Crichton sort of stuff. I was like. You understand that this guy was like a massive climate denialist, right? Like, I mean, I love his book <laughs> sales, but like, the dude was stupid and wrong. Like, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this, it is sort of a, it is sort of an interesting thing. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I think that you know, when I'm when I'm writing, I very much want to do. You know, this try to you know every every book that I'm working on is is trying to pull off this trick of of being um, both a genuine and massive entertainment in some way, and also an illuminator about the world in some way. I mean, and whether that's you know with the water knife or whether that's zombie baseball beatdown, you know, that's it's basically yeah. the same exact thing that I'm trying to do again and again and again is I'm trying to sort of say, hey, yes, have your entertainment, enjoy this story, you know, rove through this strange world, you know, um, turn those pages. Um, and, and also, you know, hopefully you can never forget the story again. So when you read, read another news article about, you know, the dwindling Colorado River, suddenly that'll be massively contextualized for you. Um, you know that's that's kind of the ideal, and yeah, I mean, you know, it's and selling a few books isn't a bad thing either. I mean, you know, it's nice well, to be able to pay, you know, pay for my kids' braces or whatever. So. <laughs> <laughs> but but also maybe uh, persuade a few people to stop investing their hopes in sort of lottery long odds of things just yeah. turning out nicely. I think I think that my biggest fear. I mean, the reason why I think that a water knife future is sort of more likely than I'd like it to be um, is that it's it's been really really interesting to sort of see um, how um, entrenched we become once we've chosen certain values ideas or political ideas and we've attached our identities to them and I, I see that a lot with sort of the Republican Party and sort of science denialism and climate um, climate change denialism and stuff like that is it's like it's 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 at this point it's it's one of those things that seems like it's not actually being processed through a rational sort of 
a dialogue of, of facts. It's, it's something else. Um, every once in a while I run into one of these people who, who wants to argue about climate change and, you know, they have all of their facts about why climate change doesn't actually exist and how it's, you know, just some giant hoodwinkery. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's, and it's fascinating to talk to these people because you realize like, huh, our fact, my facts and your facts are different facts. And apparently we don't even agree on the, what, what a fact is. Um, so, you know, at this point, you know, that's the moment when I think, Oh my God, I'm going to hand off a terrible, terrible world to my son because I don't have any way to access this person. Um, and to, to move beyond where they've, you know, centered themselves down in their sort of bunker of denialism. It's, it's, uh, you know, you can't, it's, um, I, I remember reading a study once that uh, highly partisan people, it was a study of Republicans and Democrats, partisans from each party, um, but the most partisan ones, the most partisan Democrats, the most Republi- most partisan Republicans, um, they, they basically did, a, they mapped people's uh, neurological sort of um, uh, movements when they are being, when they're processing different facts. And when they, right. when a person was being given facts that challenged what their, um, core political beliefs were, uh, when they were highly partisan people, they no longer were processing that information through the logical part of their brain. They processed it through the emotional part of their brain instead. And so literally like there was no analysis occurring. They would, they would, def- they could, they could deflect the information because it wasn't actually I mean, essentially, it wasn't even being rendered as information in their heads. Um, it was just being rendered as an emotional attack. Um, and, um, and you see stuff like that and you think, my God, you know, we, you know, if we're, if we function in a democratic society, this doesn't, this doesn't bode well for us if we can't even successfully gather information in as a species. Um, really depressing. (laughs) uh, (laughs) It kind of got, got under my skin a little bit. I was like, huh, that's really freaky. And, you know, so, you know, it sort of tells you that, you know, one of the things you don't want to do is you don't want to tie your identity to any particular political value or any particular piece of information. You want to think that you're tying your identity to, being curious and engaged with the world and that you're able to be flexible as you gain more information. Um, but yeah. Things that comes up when I'm teaching students all the time, this issue of, uh, of, an, of an emotional reaction to uh, what you would think is a data-driven issue. And right. one of the things that most seems to, uh, to, to upset students, to challenge students, is the question of how Issues like climate change, or issues mm. like vaccinations, for that matter, became political right. and ideological issues rather than rather than right. data driven issues. And it's it's even today I've got and I have a theory about it, by the way, uh, and it's it's all the fault of the internet. <laughs> you know, I actually agree. I actually think that I think the internet is a massive crazy reinforcer and it's a networker for crazy um and so it 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 acts as a sort of an exacerbator of crazy and stupid and and crazy and stupid travels a lot faster and infects a lot more easily than than the slow plotting sort of process of science for example (laughs) um uh, exciting but my mind uh, was another okay okay i'm sorry go ahead 
finish. No, no, well, no, the thing that was crazy and stupid it has real narrative power, typically, you know? The vaccines are giving your kid autism. Like, run away! You know, it's like it's got a huge amount of narrative power. And, and whereas, well, you know, it turns out there's this one scientist who did some real suspect science and they got quoted in a couple of journals. And then there were 50 other studies that have disproved that. But, you know, da 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 da. It's like there's no narrative power. There's no, there's no, you know, twist to that. And, and so the, the, the stupid story gains power. Well, that's my point, is that the stupid story stays on the net. Bad yeah. ideas don't go away. In the scientific yes. journals, uh, that guy's study on the Lancet was withdrawn by the Lancet. He was disbarred right. or whatever you do in England. But the point right. is, the website is still there. All websites right. are equal. Discredited ideas right. are as current as yesterday's yeah, yeah. reasonable ideas. Right. Yeah, no, there's, there's no, there's no process of deprecating the dumb right. in the Internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious as well. I mean, sort of uh, biographically sp- field here. <laughs> <laughs> biographically well, speaking, yeah. you know, uh, you write the wind-up girl. It comes out. You go off. You write four, I think it was, uh, n- novels aimed at young adults and middle grade readers, yeah. and then you come back to the water knife as your second adult novel. Right. How difficult was it? How different was it for you returning to that kind of uh, audience? Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, I, I think people make a bigger deal out of, I mean, for me, it hasn't, I, I, mean, I do know that there's some authors who just seem able to write for one particular audience or another, either somebody likes writing for middle grade or they like writing for YA and that really works for them and that's the spot that they belong or somebody writes for adult and they cannot ever master the process of writing for middle grade. You know, they can't change their voice. They can't find their way into that kind of a story. Um, you see those kinds of writers who, who seem to be locked in a zone, um, that it, Mostly for me, it's just a bunch of different muscles that are all really fun to use. Um, and so the, the experience isn't so much that it's difficult um, to go back from one to the other or anything like that. Um, uh, the experience is more like, oh, yeah, remember these muscles? These are fun, too. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I ended up spending a lot more time away from writing adult books than I expected to um, because there were so many things that happened um, with my career, there were a bunch mm. of there were a bunch of sort of bumps, like sort of like logistical bumps that ended up happening yeah. inside of like um, being inside of Nightshade as it sort of collapsed and some other things like that. Um, and so there was there were some logistical bumps that really slowed down the process of me um, working on my next adult book and being excited to work on my next adult book. Um, and and so that was I think that the 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 biggest thing for me actually was just trying to feel like. When I was writing the YA and middle grade books, a bunch of those were were very pressing to me. I, I actually would desperately wanted to have um, zombie baseball be- beat down <laughs> written, um, and I very desperately wanted to write the Doubt Factory. They were stories that like had been bubbling in the back of my head for a long time, and they were um, and they were ones that in some ways I was sort of worried that somebody else would scoop, um, and I wanted to get them out and get them down because I was like, oh shit, somebody else is coming. I know they're coming. I love this idea too much. Somebody else is going to get it. Um, and and with my adult stuff, I actually like I wrote the Wind Up Girl, and that one was I, it was a deep passion project, and there was a lot of things that were like powerfully obsessive for me about it. Um, 
And then I was sort of casting around for a while trying to find an idea that felt like it was important enough and worthwhile enough and that and one that I actually I mean this is the thing that I when I'm thinking about like what where books go or who I give a book to is like I you know that what's the gift that I want to hand this particular audience you know when I'm writing for you know middle grade kids what's the gift of story that I want to give to them and similarly you know when I'm thinking about like why am I choosing to write this book for adults and what do I want to give to adult readers you know what do I want to pick up in when I'm an adult reader um mm. You know, you're wanting to find the right story for that, and you're wanting to write, find the right threads, and you're wanting to sort of be able to believe in the story enough. And I think that more than anything was the hard part for me was finding the story that felt like it was relevant and necessary um, and compelling to me. Um, you know, the mechanics of writing it, there's not really switching gears isn't isn't all that hard. And honestly, um, in some ways, I feel like the time that I spent in writing YA. Um, really helped my control over things like pacing um, and mm. really helped my control over, I just feel like I have a lot more control over um, story structure, pacing, movement, stuff like that than I did before. Um, and so I feel like I sort of benefited in some ways from that. Just to back up for a second, though, I, 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 I don't believe you. At least in one thing, I don't believe you. I okay. don't think... With zombie-based just call me. Just call me a liar. No, it's awesome. Just call me a liar. Yeah, yeah. You, you were, Good. you were worried <laughs> that somebody else was going to write a zombie baseball meatpacking novel. I don't think so. I was worried that somebody else was going to get zombies and meatpacking put together. Um, I, oh. It seemed like it was so so obvious that like you're like and and in fact actually I remember when I was working on it or had maybe just finished the draft or sold the draft. I can't remember exactly when it was. I went and saw Zombieland. And and there's an offhand comment in there that it was bad beef or something, and I was like, shit, oh. it's out there. The meme is out there. I was like, shit, <laughs> shit, shit. It's like, god damn it, like you know, like you're, you know, you're, yeah. So no, no, not no. I was not worried that I would, you know, the three boys in the Iowa cornfields fighting off zombie cows was going to be stolen by anybody. But no, I really <laughs> wanted to get the, I wanted to get the zombie apocalypse comes out of meat pack out of the meatpacking industry. Yeah. I really, really wanted to get that and <laughs> and really lay into that because it, it was such a great opportunity. You know, there's there's nothing better than a feedlot for breeding the next zombie apocalypse. It's so disgusting. So <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, in, in, in a sense, that connects the that connects your whole body of work to to the classic muckraking novels of Upton Sinclair, like The Jungle. Um, sure, you know, where you <laughs> generate social change through fiction. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, those are the, I, I think that, you know, I, it's weird. I, I, for some reason, I feel like when I'm writing, I want to write fiction. I like writing stories and I feel like I need to also, I don't know, say something relevant if I'm going to kill a lot of trees to do it. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you one of the science fictional ideas, one of the most science fictional ideas to get back to the water knife, uh, are yeah. the arcologies that are uh, being yeah. raised in, in Las Vegas and and that's that's a fascinating idea because arcologies were very hot back in what the seventies and eighties when when Soleri had first published his plans right. for them and that sort of thing and I think Robert Silverberg wrote a fairly impressive arcology novel called The World Inside and we don't hear much about them anymore uh, except that places like maybe the Bellagio in Las Vegas and maybe all of the buildings in Dubai are really kind right. of preliminary arcologies. 
Well, I, and I think I think things like shopping malls are sort of in that space too. I mean, you see things like or like the enclosed spaces inside of in Minneapolis where you you move from tower to tower through you know sort of walking tubes, um, so you right. don't have to go outside. You know these. I mean, it's weird. Like we came, we ended up sort of sliding towards arcology in a slightly different way. But I mean, we're definitely building these, you know, hermetically. So, okay. So here's here's the like. I don't know why I'm obsessed with arcologies. I've always been just sort of fascinated with the idea of these big, sort of integrated, sort of living, um, you know, sort of dwelling, living, growing spaces. Um, but um, but. Um, one of the things that's fascinated me is, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of that old science fiction that's all about like domed cities and everything, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and it's and and it and it struck me at some point that yeah, places like the Bellagio or you know Mall of America, I mean, just because they aren't domed cities, these are like you know these are entirely human built environments where you aren't supposed to go outside, you aren't supposed to engage with the outside right. world at all. I mean, this is our this is our hermetically sealed you know, space. And, you know, it's like, and we, you know, it's like, you know, the earth may, you know, we may destroy our climate and have a terrible, terrible world. And what we'll have is a lot of enclosed buildings with, you know, walkways, you know, enclosed walkways <laughs> between them or whatever. And that's, you know, it's not as, it's not as sexy as a, as a, as a nice dome over your city, but, but, um, it's a lot easier to construct. And, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think with, with arcologies, I, I feel like there's, there's something really powerful. I, there's a, a scientist, a, a d- eco designer named John Todd, who I um, remember uh, reading some of his books, and probably back in college actually. Um, and they were all about sort of living machines and basically how you could harness different um, biological entities to do do the work of of you know cleaning up sewage, for example. Um, that you know with the right combination of you know, reeds and snail beds and fishes and other things that you could actually clean your sewage completely using the natural environment, which is in fact exactly what happens in the natural environment when it's not completely overwhelmed by waste. It actually is processed and turned into other things. Um, and so that the idea that you could have your waste turned into food, your water cleaned, your, you know, everything sort of recycled through in these natural processes, I really like that idea And with the arcologies sort of bringing that even more, you know, sort of pulling that out. And, and it's true, like when you're, when you're in Las Vegas and you see something like the Bellagio or you're walking through any of these mm-hmm. crazy, you know, just, you know, like what's the one Paris or whatever, or you walk through these different, yeah, you know, casinos well, where, you know, there are these, there's, they're already massively artificial environments. And, mm-hmm. and you're like, why not like make this into like, you know, gardens and, you know, and, and, you know, koi ponds and also <laughs> have your sewage treatment plant sort of integrated. Why not? It seems like it's perfect. And then you can gamble and generate revenue. It's perfect. <laughs> The one time I was in, I've been in Las Vegas a couple of times, but I remember once, after I was staying in the Bellagio because my wife, I didn't, we had a deal there. And I, I went outside to walk across the street to Paris or NY, and going outside was like, the way people were talking, it was like going outside on Mars. It's like, you want to go out into that? Uh, <laughs> right. so there already, and, and it turns out there are subterranean ways you can get from the Bellagio to Caesar's Palace and so forth. So it may very well be close to what you're describing already. 
Well, I mean, you know, in any harsh environment, you I mean, I, you saw this up in um, Montreal, too. And I, I remember noticing it up when we were up in Montreal for, for WorldCon right, exactly. up there years ago. Um, you know, the tunnels underground, yeah. you know, that, you know, connected so many things. And it's like, yeah, when your environment is harsh, what do you do? You avoid it. <laughs> Houston is the same one. Yeah. And the same when we all went up to, um, oh, uh, Calgary. Where they've raised, you know, raised uh, malls, or you know, sort of or 15, the fifteens or something, because they're fifteen feet up, and you're all mm. sealed in away from the environment because it's cold and horrible. It's going to kill you, and I, I guess that's that, that's the other part of the lesson. I mean, do you really? I mean, for all that, there's something really romantically attractive about the um, about the, the the neatness and beauty of a system that's constructed to work well. And mm. I mean, I, and I also think about uh, a few years ago. There's a television show called Grand Designs. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And there's some you guy just completely broke up on me. Oh, there. Sorry. I'm sorry. I missed that last part. There's a guy. There's a TV show out of the UK called Grand Designs. And a few years ago, they had a guy who was a crofter. You know, he basically he burnt waste wood from a forest to make char- charcoal. That was all he, what he did. And he built his own home. Oh. And he had, you know, reed beds to recycle all his waste. And he put a few solar cells in the roof with a bit of electricity. And it was this real, almost romantic, you know, idealized version of how you could survive out there in a future 21st century kind of rough kind of way. But these kind of things don't seem to be practical on a large scale. And they seem to be dangerous to invest your hopes in when you should be doing something practical rather than hiding yourself away in an arcology, however right. nice that might seem. Or, yeah, I think that, like, I think that, you know, I think there's, there are technologies that look like they're really good solutions. Mm. Um, and, and the problem is that they're solving the wrong problem, typically. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where, that, and I'm fascinated by that, actually. It's like, so here's our, here's our solution for, you know, our terribly planned cities, or here's our solution for our terrible, you know, you know, burning up environment is that we're going to create an arcology to solve that instead of saying maybe we yeah. shouldn't live here or whatever. Um, you know, here's our solution. I mean, you know, honestly, you know, something like the Central Arizona Project. Um, here's our solution for you know the fact that there's no water here in our desert. You know, in Arizona, <laughs> let's drag it. You know, 300 miles uphill through the desert and pour it in here, like. <laughs> You know, it's a, it is a technological solve, and it's 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 elegant and amazing in its own way, but but also dumb um, and creates its own problems down the road. And and I think that you know when you're when you're you know I think that a lot of times when we have you know technological solutions, it's sort of like this thing where you see the you know the um, you know we use pesticides to sort of solve the problem of 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 our pests and then it's like oh but we're killing the bees and it's like what's the solution that we're killing our bees okay well we need to find some other technological intervention to protect the bees or to you know replace bees um but you know each cascade is sort of pushing you further away from what the natural system gave you for free before yeah. <laughs> um and you know similarly like you know by the time you're sort of hived off in an arcology and, you know, that's, you know, there's sort of a moment that happens in the, um, in the water knife where they're sort of, there's this arcology that's, you know, it's beautiful, it's glowing, it's alive and everything like that. It's being hammered by this massive dust storm at the mm. same time. And, uh, and, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, this arcology works. But, like, fundamentally, like, the environment didn't have to be as fucked as it is. <laughs> um, they didn't have to be in this middle of this yeah. dust storm that was caused by all this tillage going, you know, go, getting blown out and by, you know, global warming increasing the power of the storms and by all of these 
um, you know, terrible forest fires that are occurring and all these other things. You know, it's like none of that other stuff had to happen, which would have rendered the arcology unnecessary. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's the, you know, I think we're, we're, we're sort of bad at sort of chaining backwards and saying, you know what, instead of creating a solve for our, you know, it sort of reminds me of, um, you know, in cars you have like uh, cabin air filters mm -hmm. um, too. It's like one of those things It's like, look, your air in your car is clean. It's like, or we could have clean air outside but really, that's too hard for us, isn't it? <laughs> and you know, it's like it's just the wrong solve. Um, and I think we do that all the time. So, well, well, certainly seems to me once upon a time, science fiction's solve for uh, you know the water knife would really have been to either one come up with some magic technology that produced water, not really very likely, or to come up with a whole range of really beautiful, sexy-looking technical toys to play in. That seem to make it okay to live in that destroyed environment. You know, like if the world is flooded and the you know, oceans rise by twenty meters, we'll be on wonderful, beautiful, beautiful floating, you know, your cities, and there'll be right. you, know, the, you know, sort of some kind of solar-powered skiff going past in the background, all those kind of things. Right, right. All, all of which makes you never ever stop and think about why you'd be in there, that situation in the first place. Which again seems to be like a common failing when science fiction doesn't confront those things. Yeah, I, I think. I don't know. It's I, I I have I just have frustrations. I feel like there's 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 there there's a blithe sort of like let's throw it all away sort of attitude. I sort of feel like is sort of rife within science fiction and is sort of part of science fiction's sort of history. I mean, I, I feel the same way about you know all of the you know science fiction about space travel. I mean, it was science fiction you know the genre's obsession with space travel and the idea that we we should you know you know, our true chance of survival is to, you know, launch ourselves to Mars. And you're like, well, Mars seems far less pleasant, actually. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. You know, I'm not yeah. sure why. What makes you think that that's a great environment for us? You know, like, here we are on a planet that gives us free water, free air, free food, um, essentially. Um, and we can go to a planet where that has, where we have none of those things. That sounds great. It doesn't <laughs> actually sound like a survival tactic, but you try that out, you know? I mean, or, you know, we can do this profoundly unsexy thing, which is, you know, care for the garden that we evolved within. And, and that's not, that ain't sexy. It ain't, it ain't, you know, it ain't the, you know, I don't know. It's like engineers don't grow up, you know, thinking about making a very quiet, um, you know, reed bed or, or, you know, trying to, you know, restore some estuary or, you know, making sure that right. the migratory, migratory bird patterns are, you know, look like healthy. Um, you know, there's not like, it's not, that's not where our techno fix obsession goes. It's towards yeah, let's, it's, you know, let's make an internal powerful. combustion engine work better and go faster. Right. And, and there have been, in fairness, there have been science fiction novels that do address those issues and stories, but, uh, but, but they aren't the defining, but they, yeah, I, they, no. they, I think we can all point to those outliers and say, oh, well, look at right. this or, oh, look at that. But I think that when we think about like, I mean, I mean, what is the, how is the genre itself branded itself? And That's I mean, and certainly right. for me, I remember, I mean, remember very distinctly, um, uh, saying some disparaging things at, at Worldcon one year about uh, space travel and and the the audience like rising up in anger against me. It was like this, you know, this 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 wave of hisses and you know, and like you know, <laughs> shouting and stuff like that. I mean, like you know, I I just killed a puppy. You know, it was it was amazing and and I was like, that's amazing. I mean, this is this is like the genuine sacred cow of science fiction is space flight. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to murder that sacred cow. Like, it's a I stupid idea. 
Well, is, that, is, that, is that the next story for you? I mean, I was saying to Gary before we started this conversation, I read two books back-to-back this year. Uh, I, I read Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson, which is a about a generation starship. And I okay. read, then I read The Water Knife. Uh-huh. And between them, and they actually sync. I mean, I would not recommend anybody else do that because it is a very dark reading experience, I have to tell you. <laughs> but uh-huh. what, they, what they tell me more than anything is that the... The matter of the starship in literature is absolutely impractical in the real world. Uh-huh. And unrealistic and dangerous. And even though I was one of those pimply teenage boys who grew up thinking going to the stars was the best thing we could possibly do. Oh yeah, totally. Me too. And you know, even though I was a kid who had I mean I remember I still have it. I have a high school I have a primary school newsletter where we had to write little stories about what we wanted what we were gonna do in the future. I'm like seven years old, eight years old. And I was yeah. going to grow up to be a geologist and live on Mars. It was 1970, and that seemed exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. In 2015, oh. I read Kim Stanley Robinson, and I'm convinced that our biology won't survive off, off this planet in any useful way. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I read The Water Knife, which tells me, and if you don't fix the, the biology around you, you won't be able to live here either. ha, <laughs> These are these are these are we're 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 heading towards two ver- two versions of damnation here. It's like we can't get off, and we haven't fixed it here. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, one of the far dis- sorry, Go one ahead. of the far distant things in Aurora, and this doesn't sort of s- spoil the book at all, is that you come back to in six hundred years having to terraform Earth. Ah, uh-huh. because it's easier to fix and terraform Earth than it is to live anywhere else, even after we've fucked it up. Right. Which should tell you that how critical it is that these issues be confronted now, and I don't doubt Stan Robinson would say something similar. But right. is the myth of the starship for science fiction sustainable? I think, well, I mean, I, in some ways, I think it's as sustainable as, I mean, I, well, I mean, so science fiction and the starship, I, I think that, that that trope is as powerful as dragons in fantasy. Um, I think that the, the starship is, is the, and, it, and I mean, it is a fantasy. I mean, that's, that's what, that's what starships are. They're, 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 they're they embody so many sort of, uh, sort of powerful, um, sort of mythic, uh, concepts that I think that they're they're very hard for science fiction to let go of um um you know I think personally I think they're a toxic set of um sort of values to hold in our head and I think they distract us from the real work but um but yeah I think that I think that science fiction will will continue to hold on to those things because because they're just um, they're so seductive. Um, those those concepts are so seductive. There is there's something so fabulous about them. I've been reading uh, uh, James S. A. Corey's Expanse series, mm-hmm. and I'm an yeah. addict. I love those books. You know, I they, I can crank through those, and and they are everything that you know old science fiction used to be for me when I was reading it when I was a kid, and I love it. And um, you know, it's it's a weird. It's uh, yeah. I don't know. I have a I have a very split mind about a lot of these things because there's there's what I do for pleasure where I read for pleasure what you know these these tropes that give me a lot of joy and then and then you there's a, the moment when you pause and you think oh shit somebody takes this seriously <laughs> <laughs> well, and 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 that's when you kind of get worried like you know um but I don't know I mean you know Stan is actually really interesting cuz he's he's such a great writer and such a great thinker and um 
and now I now I have to read this new one of his, and uh, uh, you know it's um, yeah. I mean, like you know, to to really sort of actually pose that question of like, well, you know, where where do we go? What do we do? You know, how easy it is is it for us to try to do pull off this trick of, you know, mm-hmm. you know, doing a generation ship and going to the stars and you know, being new pioneers once again. I mean, I think that's that's the really seductive myth of it mm. is that we can always go somewhere else where people aren't. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it seems to me that I mean the the, the 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 romance of the starship really is the romance of the high seas, isn't it? You know, yeah. It's like let's go tell a sea story, but make it modern, so we put it in space, and we'll all sort of romp around. I mean, the, the Starship Enterprise really is just some kind of exploring kind of ocean-going vessel, and it's all based right. on this on the assumption that the universe will be pretty much as as friendly as our own world is, right. It's just the moment you step off it. I mean, I remember my own first reaction to the really, you know, to, to, to the images that came back from Mars in the 1990s, and you sort of go, or the 1980s, and you sort of going, it looks like Arizona, but it really wants to kill you. Right. Yeah. 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 And is that no, really somewhere you want to go? And then I was reading a, a, right. a story this morning um, for something else, and in the background, I mean, they're sort of mentioning that the characters might go to the moon because, for various reasons, they would go to the moon. And they're going, yes, but it means you'll live the rest of your life in a basement. Right. And that seems to be what kind of still gets overlooked with all of this. Not that I want to sort of expunge the romance. I mean, Gary and I were talking about, again, uh, how there are other purposes for the science fiction story. They're, they're fun, as you were saying. Right. And yeah, also, no, deep you can, entertainment. And also, you, you can address slantwise other issues that are worth talking about. It's right. just investing in the reality of it that seems dangerous. Right. And that's not saying that I think you should kill the space program or stop pursuing science. It's just that believing that large numbers of humans will live everywhere else seems unrealistic. Well, I was right. trying I think, to make I, it... I think what it... Mm-hmm. No, go I, ahead. I think what it sorry, I, I think what it boils down to is this question of, like, how science fiction functions as a myth for us. I mean, you know, Neil Stevenson yeah. is really interested in this. Like, you know, you know, science fiction should build more po- positive mythology so that we kind of have a roadmap for a way to build ourselves forward um you know that and you know you know his criticism of you know you know dystopian literature and apocalyptic literature and a bunch of different things is you know hey you know this isn't a roadmap and in fact is building a mythology of failure um why the hell would you want to build a mythology of failure that's that's a terrible roadmap to build <laughs> um and and you do kind of see that in some ways. I mean, I've noticed that with apocalyptic literature. The uh, you know, there's this assumption that like you know, first the world goes to shit, and then everybody's going to be shitty to each other. And it's like, huh? Well, you know, or you know, there's the version of it where you know, I was in you know Japan, and you talk to the people around Fukushima who all helped each other out, and who you know set up these amazing you know shelters for one another, and really invested in taking care of each other, and. And you're like, so which version of the apocalypse would you rather live in? And I'm like, I, I'll take the Japanese one. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, so when you're thinking about myths and, and the kinds of myths that we as science fiction writers build, I mean, I think that's that's kind of where you're you're kind of looking at those. And, you know, when, you know, the science fiction story of a rocket ship, it's it's harmless until it becomes the mythology mm. of the future sure. that that we must go towards and that that is the solve when we yeah. once we build the myth yeah. that the the rocket ship is the solve for all of our plights um and problems you know that's when we get into danger it's not that yeah. the, the the rocket ship itself is a is a toxic idea it's just you know when we mistake it for you know a, a roadmap. Um, is there any attraction for you in telling the story of in a sense the other water knife which is the one where people make the hard decisions and the hard miles to build towards 
a more sustainable future. I, you know, I've, I've thought some about writing, uh, some version of a utopia. Um, and, and one of the things that's really interesting to me about that is that it strikes me that it's, this is utopia and sustainability are not technological problems. They're social problems. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so the, the story that you would want to tell is one of the social fixes um, that are necessary for us to be a more forward-thinking species um, and for us to be a, a long-lasting species. Um, and I think that those are social and political fixes and the social and political technologies that are needed, not, um, not, not, more, not more things, but, but a, a better mind for what things we need kind of um and and i think that that's you know that i can i can uh i can kind of see how i would work with those ideas um and i've kind of kicked it around in my head a little bit it's it's very difficult because you you end up in a space that is is a lot more it looks a lot more like political theory and it looks and it has a, a real strong whiff of, of um, you know, the old no utopian novels of, you know, yeah. the, the, you know, 1920s and 30s and things like that. Um, and, and those are, you know, pretty, yeah, anyway, there's, there's some, there's some, there's some problems with narrative that you end up having to solve along yeah. the way. And, and, and you get caught in this problem of like, you know, essentially we could be better if we were better. <laughs> um, is, you know, because a lot of those old utopian novels are fascinating. They're like, well, people have decided not to do this really dumb thing. And it's like, yes, we would be, definitely be a lot better if we were less dumb. And the fix for that is, I, 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 I don't right, know what facts. the fix for that is. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, I, you know, I just, you know, it's like, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm still, you know, if it's a cold day, I'd rather get in my car and drive down to town than I would ride my bicycle. You know, there's, you know, there's, there's, you know, there, I'm making bad decisions every day for my son's future. You know, there's, there's things going on there that like, it's like, <laughs> I, you know, how do you get to the solve that says, no, I care more about my, my larger society than I do about my absolute immediate comfort yeah. than my absolute cheapest tax rate that my absolute you know you know uh fastest fix of fun or food or whatever the thing is um you know there's there there is a wise path for us but i i you know but we have to be wise and so writing the story of us being wise and selling it yeah. um in a yeah. way that like seems believable um is that's that sort of feels like the crux for me okay yeah well, well we're, we're at the top of Writers didn't worry about much because the characters <laughs> no, were never that believable. Well, we're right. kind of at the, at, at the end of our hour, and I just wanted to ask you because it follows on a little bit. Have you started to have the glimpses of what you want to do next now that the water knife is done? You know, um, well, actually, so the next thing, the next immediate thing that I'm doing is I have one more book in the Shipbreaker series that I'm going to write um, called Seascape. Um, I, uh, I put little Brown off for a couple of years while I went and did doubt factory and, and zombie baseball beat down. And, and they were very patient with me about that. Um, they always wanted seascape and I kept putting them off cause I wanted to do these other projects. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, which is really funny actually, because everybody was like, Oh my God, he sold out to write a zombie book. I was like, no, no, I forced that down little Brown's throat. They didn't want it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but they they were very good sports about it. It's it's been really successful. But it was really funny, like to sort of see this thing, like you know, like you're, you're like, no, no, this was this was the the non commercial choice. Believe it or not, this was the non commercial <laughs> choice to write this zombie book. But um, 
but yeah, I want to write about Seascape, and I'm interested in writing about Seascape Boston, which you know the you know the, in mm. Shipbreaker and the Drowned Cities, um, those are both the sort of the devastated. Uh, future kind of they're they're places of you know the haves and the have nots they're the the places where people didn't plan they're the places where people couldn't get along politically or find any way to compromise with one another they're you know those broken zones and and seascape boston is the place that looked ahead and planned and uh you know and buffered itself against the changes that were coming and because of that it's prosperous um but the problem for seascape is that uh that it's prosperous alone and that it's surrounded by others who it didn't save with it. Um, yeah. And I really want to write a story about, you know, and I'm, I'm essentially I'm really interested in the sort of the narrative that we have, especially in places like the United States, where we say, well, because we're a wealthy country, we have a lot of ability to be resilient to various impacts of climate change or whatever the thing is, and, and we're fine. Of course, you know, places like Bangladesh are fucked, but, you know, oh, well. Um, and we sort of go on blithely on this assumption that our our world is not all connected. Um, that yeah. that our you know that that we can be prosperous while other people are not, and that that you know that we can maintain that buffer zone somehow. And I, I don't really I don't really agree with that. I think that we are ult ultimately connected. And uh, so I want to write that story about Seascape Boston and sort of its uncomfortable sort of relations with its much uh, less well off neighbors. Um, so so that's. Uh, Austin is kind of an island of rationality and good decision making in the middle of Texas. Is that any right. different from Austin now? I mean, <laughs> um, uh, well, uh, so Boston, Seascape Boston. Oh, okay. Not Austin, not Austin, Texas. Yeah, well, I thought you said um, Austin. Isn't it? <laughs> no, no. Austin. Never, well, think about doing one about Austin, Texas, then. Well, you know, it's sort of like if everybody's hungry enough and Austin has all the food, do you really want to, like, be that be that last enclave in Austin while the, all the angry, hungry Texans around you are, are looking oh, at you? So that's that's kind of how that works. Um, you, well, you do well, better well, when your neighbors are – we always do better when our neighbors are prosperous. They look yes. a lot less dangerous when they're prospering yeah. also. Like, you know, it, it seems so simple, and yet, uh, you know, uh, apparently it's it's too complicated for – us to yeah, figure why can't out. we all be middle class together? Well, right. One last yeah. question. Over now. But yeah. Communist. <laughs> um, well, you were talking about mythology, but talking about science fiction's mythologies. And you're right, one yeah. of science fiction mythologies historically has been, well, we'll think of something, we'll get off planet, we'll stop. But but you've got your own mythology, and when I one of the things I was I have to say is a kind of last footnote when I was reading The Water Knife, is that I could see that novel leading off in the future to the people of Sand and Slag. Um, sure. <laughs> and, and that's yeah. really depressing. Yeah, no, I, I, somebody else made a comment that they felt like, you know, they could actually pretty much link up all my stories into one yeah. long, slow-moving disaster, you know, sort of like, <laughs> you know, they, there's the early ones like the Tamarisk Cutter and stuff, and then you slowly, you know, it's like an even even things like Zombie Baseball Beatdown, and they all kind of connect up until this, you finally get to this just, you know, massively destroyed future of something like People of Sand and Slag, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so yeah I... I don't know. You know, I, I it's it's terrible like when you're doing promotion for a book because you know you want to be upbeat but um but I actually I feel like I feel like you know we're we're doing our children a disservice and mm. I sort of wish we weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well to quote one of my students you didn't have to kill the dog. Uh, yeah, well, no, I absolutely did. I absolutely did. did. Of course you did. There's no other way to do it. Such a delight. I mean, there's, there's a moment where you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to eat this dog. For sure. <laughs> oh.
Yeah, no, that, uh, that dog. I, I remember at the moment when I was like, "Oh yeah, this dog has he's, he's in my crosshairs now." Like, <laughs> <laughs> but so do you feel like this one's out of your system now? Uh, drought and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that. Yeah. I think that. Yeah, I'm not even. I'm. Not, I'm really not sure what my next uh, project. There's two possibilities. One thing I'm really interested in right now is biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another one of those uh, slow apocalypses. I'm really fascinated by um, sort of hidden and slow narratives of of change. Um, you know, and so climate change is one of those. But um, the unraveling of of ecosystems is really fascinating to me because a lot of that's invisible. Um, but you you do have a sense that like you know this is a fairly tightly woven. Um, you know, a tapestry and, and we pulled a lot of threads out of it over, over the last several hundred years and it's, you know, speeding up and, and that's a really, you know, and what does that mean and how do we engage with that and how do we even think about it when most of those things are species that we haven't yet discovered that are already gone. <laughs> um, and you know, that idea of like the losing the invisible that might be actually the critical, um, yeah. is really interesting to me. Yeah. So that's that's possibly one of the next directions that that I that I might end up going, but we'll see. Well, we should look forward with interest. I mean, uh, hopefully, well, by the time this podcast goes out, so I think the water knife will be about a week away. It's a you know, I thought a dark, engaging thriller. I honestly couldn't put it down, and I hope that uh, everybody who listens goes and checks it out. Thank you very, very much for making the time to join us again, Paolo. We really appreciate it. No, thank you. This was fun to do. And we hope, hope we'll get to talk to you again sometime soon. I don't know where we'll cross paths again, but certainly, you know, at some point in the not too distant future, we'll talk again, I hope. Yeah, maybe at Worldcon or something. So. Worldcon, yeah. Or World and Gary, you and I will talk again next week. Next week or tomorrow. Absolutely. And until then, thank you very much.